Welcome to the PT Compass Podcast. My name is Simon Murphy, and I'm a final year physiotherapy student on the Gold Coast in Australia, and I am your host. I talk with practicing physios, students, and other healthcare individuals. I hope this podcast lets you find your best professional or student life. Enjoy. What's up, everyone, and welcome to 2021. On today's episode, I get to chat with Neil, also known as the Kettlebell Physio on social media, about his entire PhD process. So he's currently a PhD student and a physiotherapist, and he just kind of gives us a bit of an idea of what it's like to be a PhD student and where he's at in the current process. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I was listening to a bit of a, a bit of another podcast. It's called like the Sensory, it's called this, I think it's the Sensory Project, and it's with two OTs, and they like to start off uh, their podcast mm-hmm. interviews with some, I guess, secret questions, but I'm going to call them an icebreaker intro. So <laughs> they're just like, they're basically four or five questions just like to get you to get to know you a little bit other than not associated with physiotherapy. Oh yeah, this is good. Um, but oh, what, okay. okay. So what would you say your, your go-to workout location is? Oh, right now it's um, either right behind me. I've got a, a rowing machine set up. I was I was struggling exercise-wise, and I thought I've I've got to get back into the habit of exercise. So I've um, I won't turn the camera around, but there's a rowing machine be, beside me or behind me that hadn't been used. So I've I've stuck a huge plasma in front of it. So <laughs> now I'm sitting down watching something on the TV and just casually rowing for 30, 40 minutes if I can. So so you and the rest of the world are just setting up like home gyms as best as you can (laughs) yeah yeah i haven't been regularly exercising now um outside of home for a long time so yeah home's the go-to okay next question if you could have any so any treat would you choose something sweet or salty or sweet sweet every time what so what would you if you could have like some crazy night snack like while you're like kicking back watching some movie what would be the sweet treat of choice well, this is a good time to ask because at Christmas, um, last night I finished off the trifle I made, 11 layers of trifle, and that went down a treat. <laughs> and that was very late. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. That's good. Um, and next question. So many other, I guess, Americans, Canadians always ask me this question, um, but do you think pineapple deserves to be on pizza? Absolutely. Ketchup really? as well. Oh, and I eat it with a knife and that. fork. <laughs> yeah, oh absolutely. gosh, that's funny. I did. I did ask a oh. Facebook post about um, pineapple. Do you put it on in chunks or mashed? I go chunks. Yeah, I don't. You can I get mashed. You can get mashed, like mashed or diced. It's very finely chopped up. But I go oh, chunks. All right. Okay, interesting. So and ketchup. No, you would. You have to put ketchup <laughs> on it. <laughs> all right let's get into the the meat and potatoes or the fun cool. stuff so uh neil do you mind just giving yourself a bit of an intro in terms of um who you are and where you're originally from and um just let the audience know who you are okay um i moved here from the uk 2004 and uh, at that point physio wasn't even on the the radar so my first degree was a combined honors degree in business and management uh, at the university of central lancashire which i finished in 96 and then 
came over to Australia, did the traveling thing, fell in love with the country and decided that I would come back. Um, it took six years to, to get back. But when I came over, I, I was in a business analyst slash project manager role. And at that point had a, um, a role working for BP at the oil refinery in Brisbane. That was my last, um, last venture in that career. And then I had a, a kind of a life event um, it was 30-ish then and decided to get out. I wasn't enjoying it, became a personal trainer and then was asked to continue teaching. So that started a career in vocational education and training. Um, and I was there for 10 years and there was an overlap. So I, I started off in, in the vet sector as a personal trainer and teaching that and then that moved into massage and manual therapy. And it was a, a diploma course that I was involved in teaching that was very osteopathic focused that really sparked an interest in me in, in not only learning, but wanting to know more. And then that got me wanting to go back to uni again. So at the end of 2007, I signed up to, to do the physio program at Bond. Um, unbeknownst to me, I had to do exercise science first. So I had a semester of chemistry at the end of 2007 and then did exercise science at Bond, had a semester break and then the, the Doctor of Physio program which I finished um, April 2012. So that's academically my, my, my background. My plan was always private practice. I never wanted to work in, in a hospital. Um, so I, I had a job in a private practice lined up for four years throughout that um, exercise science and physio um, stage and went into that with a plan of I'll work for this franchise practice for 12 months and then buy into the franchise that was that was my plan um, that didn't work out because I didn't really enjoy the role that I had and then had an opportunity to to get out which I did and then go back to the teaching role that I, I had um, Two and a half years later, I decided that I'd open up my own practice. And so I did that at the end of 2015 and ultimately closed that at the end of 2017 um, and then started the PhD full time within a few months. So um, next week, 7th of Jan, will be my three year anniversary of the PhD. Cool. Is, is it? It, is it does it sound odd to you talking about like a business management beginning and then you transitioning into like a health role and now you're doing like a PhD does that is that sound odd to you um I, from from a from an outsider's perspective um starting with a business management degree and then going into physio or going into your exercise science is kind of a unique way to do it the the reason for that was that um, my father was in that field and growing up, he had instilled in me this real passion for exercise and, and sport. And um, when I was probably 16, 17, that's when I started going to the gym. And ultimately, I, I wanted to be almost a personal trainer, but own a gym. So that was something that I'd wanted to do a long time before physio, but my dad said, there's no money in that. Um, you should do a business and management degree because it's general, you can take it anywhere. So I did that purely because my dad told me to. So I spent three years um, 
I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't feel like I was in the right place and it felt like I was treading water. And then the career that I eventually went into following that, I never really got a lot out of it, but I didn't, I didn't have a plan beyond that. I just thought that's what I was going to be doing. Um, and it's just a series of, I guess, circumstances that have pushed me off in a different direction. It doesn't feel odd. Um, but I don't think there was an awful lot of value in, in me having, finish that degree in terms of what I then went on to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just, you, you, you tried something, you did it, and then you moved on to the next yeah. thing and just pivoted. I think it was yeah. just like, it's just a general thing that happens in life in general. So, um, but I think it probably gave you a bit of a, a bit of a background in terms of the business side of, of things that you can transition into the wonderful world of physiotherapy. Um, I would say, maybe, maybe, I would say I, it maybe. didn't give me any help whatsoever. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. And now you're uh, coming up to your three year, I guess you said three year anniversary of starting your PhD. Yeah. So it'll be three years on the seventh. Okay. Now what led you to, to, you must've had a transition period where you were like, do I really want to do this PhD? What kind of made you turn on the green light to actually go do your PhD and decide to start that? Um, the short answer is the business closing. So when I, when I left Bond in 2012, I had zero aspirations to do a PhD, none at all, it wasn't even on the radar. Um, when I finished my first degree in 96, I said I'd never go through uni again. <laughs> um, I, but I think if you find something that you're interested in, that changes your perspective. So with, with Pride Physiotherapy, I'd signed a three-year lease and I was in that for the long haul. We'd bet the house on it working, um, but it didn't turn out that way. And because I had quite a lot of, I guess, downtime there with the business not getting the foot traffic that we, we needed, it meant that I was spending a, a lot more time looking at research and following people and social media was blowing up. And it just at that point seemed the next logical step. And the other point to that is that at Bond, there's such an emphasis on evidence-based practice. And I was really acutely aware that I had no evidence to support what I was promoting, which was this kettlebell thing. So having come from a, a vocational education background and been in, heavily involved in that for a decade and that really being my, my passion, which was learning and teaching, it just seemed like the, the next logical step and ticking a number of boxes. I got to do some research in the area that I was interested in, which was kettlebells and how that could be used in a clinical setting. Um, I was learning more and ultimately I would be involved in the physio program and hopefully get a, a postdoc position at Bond and be able to continue that. So it just seemed like the right choice at the time. So having been through the program, I was in contact with um, Professor Wayne Hing and, and Ben and a number of other people. So I had that connection and was able to just start asking questions about what's what would be involved and is it an option for me to, to come back and do a PhD. And I didn't really know what was involved at that point at all. So, so you really just pulled the trigger and then decided you were going to, I guess, do a lot of your research on, uh, I guess, 
kettlebells and things like that. But can you give us a bit of a, you don't just do research on kettlebell, but what are you currently researching that's associated with kettlebells? Um, just to provide a bit of a, a simplistic concept sure. of, of um, what you're, you're, you're researching. I guess the other, the other background piece of information to that was that at the practice, it was all about kettlebells. I'd, I'd had this branding of the kettlebell physio, and the idea was that we, would go, we were going to run this model of running group classes, teaching people how to use kettlebells. And we were doing that morning and afternoon, um, effectively six days a, a week. And our most regular visitor was a 67, 68-year-old lady with two prosthetic knees. And I remember the first time she came into the practice and she had tears in her eyes because she was the first bilateral um, recipient or first recipient of bilateral knee prosthesis on the Gold Coast. And she was told at the time, these will last you about 10 years. And the 10-year window was about to tick over. And in her mind, she had this image that her her prosthesis were going to crumble and her knees were going to just give out on her. Um, so she started training with us. And by the time we closed, she'd done nearly 200 classes. And there were, not only was she amazing for a, a very petite 68 year old woman with two prosthetic knees, but there were a couple of instances where she had come in and described tripping and avoiding a fall, which she specifically attributed to the, the training. So the, the question that I had was that, could we use this style of training and this delivery in terms of the group classes that I was running to help older people not only get active, but would that reduce their risk of falls? So that was the, the question that I had, would it reduce risk of falls? Um, so that's the question that I approached Bond with, can I do this? And um, this is the research question that I've got. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it... <sighs> For being still a very young student in my career, um, it's yeah you, you don't. I, I feel like you're the first, I guess, individual that's really I've seen focused on the idea of kettlebells. But maybe that's just are there other people also looking at that um, from a research perspective as well? I, I just may have been missing that. That's all. Yes, there there have been an, a number of others. Um, the the first an American guy, um, Dr. Ben Fung, he's probably the most um, widely it, for for people that have been looking at the the literature. His name will probably be one of the first that pops up. Um, the the scoping review that I published uh, two years ago, eighteen months ago, that mm. pretty much covers everything. There's been a a reasonable number. Um, off the top of my head, I'm forgetting the numbers now, but there's in the region of 20 odd studies a year focused on kettlebell interventions coming out now. Um, and that scoping review pretty much covers every, all of them if, if anyone's wanting to have a look um, and find citations and go off down that rabbit hole. But I'm certainly not the first. Yeah, so I mean, it, it seems like this, it's a topic that's a reasonably worthwhile uh, trying to research. Uh, but I guess, as a PhD student, do you still classify yourself as a student? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. PhD student. Do you, what is like a typical day look like for you uh, along the process? Uh, I guess I'm just trying to figure out, are you just kind of sitting at your desk looking at research all day or, or what's that kind of look like for you? I was thinking about this when you sent the questions through. There's, there's not really a typical day 
for a PhD student because every, every student's journey is completely unique. There are no classes, there's no subjects, there's no credits. You have a, a research question, you get a start date and an end date and somebody says go. And that's pretty much it. Um, and I'm sure everybody's journey is very different and I can only really speak of mine. Um, I have spent a lot of time sat on my backside um, looking at research and writing. have done for the last few months and it will be all I do until the end, which hopefully will be mid next year. Um, but it really depends. So I ran a a 12-week intervention as part of a six-month trial. So we had a, a three-month control period. Um, we had a group, or I had a group of 32 people that had signed up, and we had to test them. So we ran them through a, a series of tests in November. We repeated it in December. We repeated it again at the beginning of February. And then I had a 12-week um, exercise program where they were exercising five days a week, three days with me, two days at home. So what I was doing during that period is very different to what I'm doing now, which is effectively no interaction with any of the trial participants, um, no interaction with pretty much anybody because I'm, I'm at home. So it, it changes depending on the stage of the, the program, if that makes sense. Early on, you'll be doing a lot of um, reading because you have to do a literature review, which you've done as part of your research mm -hmm. component. Yes, I guess that leads us to a really good kind of question I wanted to ask you is that uh, what are the components that need to be completed for a PhD to, for you to be, I guess, have that PhD title? Because yep. um, I, 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 I actually don't know that. I only know the paper part of it, but I don't know the whole process. So I'm actually curious to hear um, your informational five well, minutes on this. <laughs> well, when I put my hand up and I initiated this yeah. process, even at the point of signing up and starting I didn't know what was involved and nobody had really nobody had explained it to me I haven't had a conversation with anybody at, at Bond about making sure that I as a student really understand what's going to be involved ultimately and it will differ between institutions at Bond all you get assessed on is this thesis that you submit at the end um, that's it. They don't assess you and give you the award of the PhD on anything other than the, the thesis that you submit at the end. We at Bond don't have to do a verbal defence, but a lot of um, other institutions do, which might be a 30, 40 minute presentation, um, presenting your work and defending that against a panel, but we don't have that. So um, the, the thesis which I haven't started writing yet, will be somewhere in the region of 80,000 words and it will be structured a bit like a book. So there'll be a series of chapters starting with your um, literature review and, and then following whatever sequence that particular student's research journey has led them on. So there'll be a research question. You do the literature review to um, identify what's known and not known in order to steer your research journey or direct your research journey, you'll do some form of intervention and then present the results of that in a series of chapters, logical um, academic research-based chapters in a, in a book, which we call a thesis. And that's what we're marked on. Ideally. So is that, 
yeah it, ideally yeah. along the way those each of those chapters will be represented by some form of publication you don't get marked on academic publications but it's kind of expected and ideal if you do have those so you might have so for me for example i've i've got the scoping review um i had i've had 70 people roughly in a lab so i've got a lot of lab data and there might be four papers that i can produce based on that lab data i've run the sixth month clinical trial and there will be a paper out of that and i've got a, an embedded qualitative component where i've interviewed 28 of those participants so there'll be another paper out of that and potentially another couple of papers out of the trial based on individuals um, experiences and their outcomes okay that makes sense and then each one of those academic papers within your thesis that you make are you submitting each one of those to some sort of um, journal I yes I, ideally yeah. yeah or you can you can publish to open science but that's not peer-reviewed but there's definitely been a change to um, pre to publish preprints so I, I can publish it to open science it's not changeable at that point but it it creates a um, a publicly available record of what you say you're going to do um, by which people can then check so I publish after the event it's peer-reviewed and people can then compare the pre with the post and see whether I've done what I said I was going to do made any changes mm -hmm. And it, it's a it's a validation check of my work as a researcher, if that makes sense. Okay. And then, so when you have your full thesis or your, I guess, the book done at the very end, will you have to do some sort of like presentation on your thesis or is it just they look at it and mark it? No. So the defense, the presentation of the thesis um, at other academic institutions, I, I think comes around about the same time. It's not after the fact. So you defend your, your thesis, I'm guessing, at the same time that you're submitting it. It then goes out to review um, and you will either get a, a, a tick that there's no changes, which my understanding is that that never happens, um, or you get minor or major revisions. It would be, I think it would be uh, very unusual for somebody to have their thesis rejected, would be my guess. Um, so I would anticipate that when when it comes back from the external review, there will be some form of changes that need to be made. In terms of the, the publications, let's say chapter three is represented by a publication that has already been peer reviewed and it's out there. It makes it easier for that review process to take place if the content of that has already been published, if that makes sense because yeah, somebody totally else has sense. already looked at it and gone, yeah, that, that's okay. And we're happy to, to publish that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's, it's one of those things where I've had multiple conversations with um, other students about, Hey, are you doing, are you wanting to pursue your PhD after um, we finish in three or four months? And the, the answer I always, always give is I, I can't imagine myself doing a PhD initially because I feel like I've been in school for so long. Uh, that being four years, so seven, six, seven years now. Um, and, I, and I just, I'm itching to get that hands-on experience 
but at the same time, I, I truly think we, our profession would be nowhere without research. Like, how are we supposed to know what's the best practice to do with our clients? So at the same time, there's something in me that says, I feel like I, I want to make a contribution to that research pool, but it, 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 I always say it has to be on something that I'm super passionate about uh, and some, like a population that I'm currently working with. So I like, I see myself uh, working, like say in the, uh, working in like a pediatric population, that's what I want to do specifically with kids with disabilities. So if I find a passion for say kids with cerebral palsy, and then I want to contribute to the research pool, then that leads me into that PhD. But I, I can't imagine myself going right out of school and then right into a PhD because I haven't really truly found what I'm fully passionate about. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm the same. Yeah. The, if yeah. somebody had said, do you want to do a PhD? It would have been an, a flat out no. I'm, I'm not interested. I've, um, I have no reason to do a PhD at that point when I left. No desire whatsoever. Um, I, I think if, you, if you're interested in research, and you've got an area that you're particularly passionate about for you would be peds. It, it just needs somebody or something to create that opportunity and the circumstances to be right. Um, it's like you say, you've already spent years at uni. You're going to be doing another three to four. If it's full time, if it's part time, that's seven to eight years. So you, you've got to have the, desire but the resources in in time and financial support as well but i think if the opportunity and the circumstances align and it seems like a right fit then for for people that are interested and, and enjoy learning and want to know more then it seems like a a good option for some for sure yeah exactly i mean it wouldn't i guess when i'm done school i'm never gonna stop learning and from that standpoint, but I think doing a PhD is a great opportunity to push yourself to, to go that extra mile to learn more and more and more. Um, but I guess the curious thing I want to ask you is, is what did you find the best part of doing your PhD so far is? Like, what do you enjoy the most about reading an awesome article or, or doing testing with with individuals to kind of answer your research question. What's the best part about the PhD process? The most enjoyable for me in my journey was the, the training intervention. Because ultimately, it's the reason why I wanted to, when I was 16, open up a business was to motivate and inspire and get people physically active. That's always been my, my driver. It was the reason why we set up the practice the way that we did. Um, so for me, being able to replicate that, it was extremely difficult because I had such a large number of people that I had to have for research purposes. There's no way anybody in their right mind would or should try and replicate what I did in a practice because it, they'd be insane. Um, it's just it doesn't make sense to do it that way. But doing that and getting a large group of people together was it was challenging, but it was rewarding. It was enjoyable for me. I'm, I'm hands-on. I, I like to be involved in that. Um, the other thing is, I, I guess, learning. I have had an interest in, in kettlebells. It's been my branding for so long. So the, the process of looking through the literature and getting a, a, a handle on 
what's out there has been, I guess, intrinsically re rewarding, but ultimately it would be working with people, working with the trial participants, doing the exercise. Yeah, and then what do you find the, I guess, the most difficult part about the PhD process? So not necessarily the bad part, because I think every process in life has bad parts, but what do you think the most difficult uh, part of the PhD process was? Uh, well, there was probably many, uh, I guess, like your top three. Um, the, the, the top two, the, the PhD itself, um, not knowing the pathway and not knowing what the end goal is, either ultimately, so I mentioned the thesis, I haven't looked at even constructing the thesis yet, I haven't looked at exemplars or templates, so I'm going into that blind. Um, not having direction is probably been the most challenging thing um, at multiple steps. From a personal perspective, the the cost in terms of time. Um, so I've got an eight-year-old son and five-year-old daughter, and I feel like I have neglected them. So that's hard. Um, yeah. my, my son, I, I feel like I haven't been involved with his first three years of school at all, or really expressed any interest in it. So personally, that's, that's the, I wouldn't say it's a regret, but if if I could do things differently, I would I would spend more time with my kids. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, after you going through this entire process and kind of identifying what you really love about it and what things that aren't so good about it, uh, what type of advice would you provide to students like me or anyone who's looking to? kind of start on that PhD journey process, what type of advice would you give to them to find that balance of kind of working on your PhD, but all at the same time still in, enjoying that life process and, and just kind of balancing that a bit? Um, I, I don't think there's a, a single answer to that because everybody's different. I'm quite an introvert. Um, I, I think I see other people that have a better life balance than I do. Uh, I think the life balance that I have is largely because that's just my personality. I, I, I like to work on a, on a project and I'll jump in and do it until it's done. But that means that I'm making a choice to sacrifice other things, whether that's exercise or time with my, my kids, whereas other people won't do that. They will prioritize other things. Um, if you're doing it, I don't think I could do it part-time. For me, seven to eight years is too, too big a bite for me to, to, to chew on. I don't think I would have signed up if it was gonna be that long. It's particularly having already spent so many years at uni. Um, so I think it depends. And if, if you're a student and you join a a PhD position as part of a well-established, well-funded, well-known research group, and you're going in, you've and somebody or an institution knows that they need a role filled, and they know each of those steps that need to be achieved in order to get the PhD, the journey for that student will be very different to the journey like I have had, where there was, there was nobody 
around me. So the, the tactical research unit at Bond, for example, um, mm -hmm. is a monster now. You've got probably 30 plus students that are all working on different projects and it's, it's a beast. You've got a lot mm -hmm. of staff and you've got a lot of funding and a lot of research projects and you get picked up on that and you move quickly. Whereas somebody like myself has come in as an individual with no backing and no support and nobody else that's really interested in the topic that I'm looking at. So I'm having to forge my own path, which makes it incredibly slow in comparison. So I think it really depends on the individual, their circumstances. If I was um, 10, 15 years younger, so I'm gonna be 46 next year, if I was 10, 15 years younger and, and single and behaving the same way that I was as a, as a physio student, I would be spending a lot more time on it and I would be ahead of where I am now. So circumstance makes a, a big difference as well. Yeah, well, I, if you're, I feel, well, you said you're done, hopefully, fingers crossed, done mid next year. So I feel like the process is almost near the end and you'll probably have a few more bumps to get over. Uh, in the in the coming year but I guess from if you could just give a bit of uh, direction in terms of if so any students who are currently doing uh, say any research papers or any research projects or um, anyone who's just starting their PhD is there any kind of key resources that you would point people towards that helped you kind of guide the process? Oh I'm sorry I didn't really answer your question about what advice would you give people to um, those, those that are interested in starting a PhD. Um, yeah, to go, sure. to go back that. to that very briefly, I, sure. I would speak to as many people as you can that are currently working in either as students or supervisors in the area that you're wanting to work in and get a, a good feel for that. So I, I hadn't spoken to anybody at Bond. I knew the academic staff, but I didn't know any students. Um, so I think if you can go in with your eyes wide open as to what it's really like, what the institution's like, what the support is like, what the process is like, I think that will make life a lot better. Um, it's like yourself running a podcast. It's, it's fantastic to see a, a Bondi representing and I've been waiting years for somebody to do it. And I'm sure the fact that you've yeah. made connections, had conversations with people, has answered questions and created opportunities and just been really interesting. You, you can apply the same logic to or approach to anything. And I think if you're wanting to sign up to a PhD or to do a PhD, speaking to as many people that have been there, done that, doing that um, is probably the, the most advantageous. In terms of resources and for myself, um, I, I keep going back to this, whether it's physio or me now with a PhD journey is social media. The, the, the amount of material that I've got from social media that has um, molded and steered my personal journey is uh, immense. Um, two particular, PT Inquest with Eric Mera and J.W. Matheson. It's less uh -huh. academic, but a number of the things that have been discussed on there have specifically influenced my journey. So pre-trial registration. Um, so if you're gonna be running a a clinical trial if it's not pre-registered you're shooting yourself in the foot because I think for more than a decade now a lot of the journals that will ultimately publish that research if it's not being pre-registered they won't publish it um, and I had nobody has yet mentioned pre-trial registration to me publishing a, a trial protocol 
was something that I'd also picked up from PT Inquest, and that's why I wrote mine and published that to Open Science. My my goal was to get it academically published, but because of circumstances, that didn't happen. Um, and something called registered reports was something that I'd picked up in conversation, um, listening to P PT Inquest and the Everything Hurts, Hurts as in Frequency Hurts. Um, that's a lot more academic. So that's two postdoc um, researchers that are talking about the academic and PhD and research journeys. Um, I asked somebody at, at Bond about this registered reports only six months ago and she'd never heard of them. Um, and it's, it's important. There's this push and it's a, an, an ideal sequence of steps that a researcher and or student should be taking. And if they're not taking it, they're potentially going to shoot themselves in the foot one way or another or miss out. Um, and I've only found out about that because I'm listening to podcasts. So purely by accident, my scoping review was by accident. So I think just being interested and paying attention and, and listening to the people that are in your sphere of influence and in your um, discipline is probably the, the, the best advice. And that goes for physio as well. If you're interested in ACLs then you'll be listening to X, Y, and Z because they're the people either doing the research or promoting the research and you can pick up and learn by proxy just being proactive. Yeah, and I think one of the things we can direct people towards too is, uh, I guess one of the ones I used a lot uh, was to look for systematic reviews and like good quality research is, is Pedro, which I think is the University of Sydney that mm. supports that. Yeah. Um, and so, so definitely Pedro's <laughs> good. Um, I know both you and I use the, I think it's called Researcher app. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's called, it's, sorry, Researcher. is it literally called Researcher? Yes. Yeah. So that's a, that's a decent app that people can find on the app store and you can uh, find specific journals that you're interested in and then kind of save those. And that comes up with uh, up-to-date uh, research. So that's, uh, that's always good. Um, for uh, something of my interest, the uh, Cerebral Policy Alliance has a uh, newsletter that they come out with like every uh, few, every month, I think they have, where they just send out a newsletter. Yeah. And you can also go on their website and find basically all the latest research uh, based on cerebral policies, such as medical uh, treatments. And um, it's just like, a, it's a solid, a solid place to go for that type of thing. Um, and then you have your, I guess your, um, your PubMed, and then you have your, um, uh, like a bunch of other things that probably you have easier access with um, when you have some sort of institution association with it. Um, but I think Pedro is always a, a, the place I start to look for um, systematic reviews and just high quality research and then kind of work my way down. Now, I wouldn't be able to talk about this discussion about five or six months ago um, when I just started the journey, but it's, it's actually quite rewarding now to be able to, to talk about research in this perspective um, and then actually apply it to clinical practice uh, and then talking about it in a PhD sense. So um, I just wanted to thank you for for chatting with me, Neil. Um, I've been working at the conference to ask you for an interview for a while now, um, <laughs> but I figured I, I figured I figured I'd start off uh, January just having a, a bit of a discussion about the PhD process because it's something that's always in the you. back of my head. Yes, what's up? What did you take from those two research subjects? 
I, I think the biggest thing I took from it is, is how, um, first of all, from a technical standpoint, the, the ability to look at a piece of research and know where to go within the actual paper itself to say, okay, first of all, like, what's the question? Uh, and not skipping over the methodology, which I typically would do a year ago, but looking at the methodology and just taking, taking off my boxes um, if they had, say, two independent reviewers or as, other different ways of reducing biases. Um, so being able to identify in the methodology, okay, is this a, is a paper worthwhile reading? Um, and then being able to go to the results and kind of starting to understand some of those statistics that may be kind of identified and actually knowing what they mean. Hmm. Um, and then going down the conclusion, being able to pick up that information uh, and kind of applying it. So I guess from, from a methodological standpoint, I can actually pick out information. Um, but at the same time, I have a huge appreciation for the importance that Reacher's plays in informing clinical practice. Like I can only imagine when physio first started, people are just like, let's try this, see if it works. Let's try this. And, but now there's so much research being presented, I guess, every month um, to inform practice. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. If you enjoyed the episode, please help me out by subscribing, dropping a review on iTunes, or sharing this episode with another person. It really helps me out. If you'd like to follow me on any of my social media platforms, Instagram is the one to go to. That's where I post all of my content and interact with all of you. So thanks for listening again and enjoy the rest of your day or night.